Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. How's your cultural civil war going? My cultural wow, New York is really uh, I I it, they're just marching up and down the streets. Essentially, there's just vans, news vans with people, uh, uh, media people with media in air quotes um, making demands. You're you're actually holding your head. If you could see Sarah Hepler right now, she's 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 holding her face with her eyes closed because we are all chat, chat, chattering away what's going on. But before we get to that, a couple of things I just want to mention. Uh, it's 821 here in New York City in the morning. And at nine o'clock, I am going to have to use my brand new NYC parking app to pay for parking. I've never used it. So I'm going oh, to- Oh, talk- primo subscribers, please stay tuned for yeah, this. For this. this is what you pay the big bucks for. But, but- so you can hear <laughs> Nancy paying for parking. No, tell listen, us more. This is listen, great. Listen to me. I wanted to just tell the, the listeners that while I was downloading my New York City parking app, I saw a rat run by. So I just thought that was like kind of a double New York morning. That's my morning um, that I've had. And the second thing I want to say before we go on is, I, you know, listeners, I know you feel like you know Sarah Hepla and me, and you do. You do. And, and actually, we're going to be on the uh, Substack chat so you can know us even better. But I want to say I've got uh, an insanity going on in my, my life that we're not going to get into details about because that's not necessary. But I called Sarah Hepla this morning at like 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. and told her about it and what she did I actually have never in all my time on this earth had somebody do, which which she's like, Nancy, you know what? You're doing a really good job. And here, and the options that you have, you've chosen the best ones. And I was like, you are, you sound, your mother is a therapist and I can tell. And she's like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly how my mother always talks to me. But I just wanted to say, Sarah, I've never experienced it. And it was so, it was really nice. So thank you. You're, you're, she, she's the nice one on this podcast. If that had not come through already, she's the nice one. I think the truth is, is that we're both nice about different things, you know, that we're good compliments and there's some things that I'm not so nice about. Um, the kids in my memoir class told me this week that I have a, can have a really scary voice. And I was like, yeah, my, my brother has told me that. And, you know, my brother once said to me, I don't think you know how you sound. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's ways that I get, you know, spiked up with adrenaline and I have a very harsh voice. And then one of the kids was like, I think it's because your voice is so low. And I was like, I think it's all the smoking because they know I smoke. They, they know I'm a dirtbag. Uh, well, you do have a you kind of have a sexy. What did you call it? A night slither voice? Mm. Yeah, that night slither. I got to give that to Amanda Fortini, um, who's uh, hopefully going to be coming on the podcast soon. She's a friend of mine, also a brilliant writer, and she's married to Walter Kern, um, who also will hopefully be accompanying her. And, um, you know, when when Amanda, Amanda was one of the early readers on Blackout. Um, and when she wrote it back, when she got back to me, she said she, she referred to certain passages as the night slither passages. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm never giving up that phrase. No, of course not. Um, so yes, so we are here in New York city where there is 
a, a, a tempest in a New York Times teapot, certainly not the first. Uh, uh, we were getting them increasingly um, over the years. We certainly had a lot of that go on after the Tom Cotton op-ed that upended uh, the New York Times and saw uh, James Bennett, who was second, who was basically said to be he he would have been like the next editor in chief head of of of, uh, of the paper he was drummed out uh, our our friend Barry Weiss left um and that was letters you know it was in inside the building they found that an opinion piece an opinion piece because you know here's the thing opinion sections are supposed to run opinions they felt that um it was he was very dangerous to uh to i guess to the general public but also to uh writers inside the times i guess specifically black uh, writers. Is that right? Am I getting that right? I think I'm getting that right. Yeah. Well, look, that that was, you know, done during the Black Lives Matter moment. Yep. Uh, yep. Tom Cotton had written um, an op-ed about sending in, I believe, the National Guard. Right. To some cities where there was a lot of unrest. Uh, and, you know, as someone who was on the ground where there was a lot of unrest, where, you know, the uh, federal forces were sent in, I, I can't, I can, I think both things fed each other. There was unrest. The feds came in. There's more unrest. It was, you know, it became a conflagration. But one of the interesting things about that was, you know, there was a big roar of protest from the people that worked at the Times. And I think uh, having read more about this moment now, they had met with their union reps who told them that, you know, like Times people are not supposed to write about working at the New York Times, but they can if they're, they're in danger. And so the line that was agreed upon and tweeted out by a lot of people that worked there, and a really surprising number of people, I mean, I, I wow, um, said this this op-ed puts black lives in danger or black and brown bodies in danger. I can't remember what the language was. It was quite astonishing. Um, it was, it was, it was quite astonishing, um, to see that. And, and then of course, this is also the saga that leads to a editorial meeting wherein Barry Weiss, uh, is tweeting about the generational divide at the New York times and this ends up as a conflagration on Slack, which is the internal chat service at many publications, um, about how they can, you know, when is this bitch going to leave the paper? And there's there's hatchet emojis and there's, you know, it's a lot of really nasty stuff. And Barry Weiss does end up leaving and writes a bit of a barn burner of an exit note. Wow. So I am, as people know here, I'm friends with Barry, and I wrote a piece, I think, in 2021 for uh, The Dispatch about uh, about Donald McNeil and, and his exit, because that was also started inside the paper. That was another sort of like manifesto letter sent by, uh, I think, 170 people inside the paper saying, you know, his reporting was dangerous. And also the fact that he'd like repeated the N-word back to a student. It's a it's a long story and you probably know it. And I've written about it and we'll put some links in here. But while it's very important to point out that none of this happened in the actual paper. no. No. What do you what we what do you mean by that? He like, didn't say he didn't use the no. N word in the paper. I mean no. he used this on a on a student field trip, trip yeah. with a student years before right. the, a couple the of years moment before, in question. 
a couple of years before, it had already been brought up the year before. The paper had said, you know, it's probably not too smart, but okay, it, it's done. But then it got re-brought up a year later. So basically, it was like a double jeopardy thing. And he was ushered out. In any case, when I was speaking to a lot of people to report that piece, uh, someone said to me, well, you know, one of the reasons why Barry is not liked inside the paper is because she's very telegenic and she's very smart. And when, you know, the news cameras come up to the building inside the Times and they want to talk to somebody, they want to talk to Barry. This is, you know, this is basically like high school girl stuff. It's like, why is she getting all the sunshine? I That's know people, really interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, but the, and this is true. Look at what she's doing now. I mean, I remember when she left having many conversations with her, like, where would she wind up going? I mean, I had many... Well, in any case. And, you know, she wanted to create the best opinion pages in the country on her own. What has she done? She has done this and more. And, you know, she's created what is now called the free press, which has put out some astonishingly impactful journalism, including a recent piece um, from a whistleblower that a woman that worked um, at a clinic for transitioning teens. And, you know, it's really quite an astonishing piece. And I think it's it's very interesting that that piece had huge impact, much bigger huge. impact than the stories that are being um, protested in the New York Times. But I almost think that story prompted this letter because, yeah, because there's an almost like, well, we can't get her. Let's get the Times. Right. Well, I, and I, also before we start, I'm sorry to interrupt no, no, you, but no, I no. just want to lay the groundwork for some of our listeners who are not journalists, because I think there's plenty of them out there. And this is such an inside baseball. Are there? It's, it's more. It's becoming more like an insider gladiator arena or inside Hunger Games situation going on here. You know, the firing of Donald McNeil, which you brought up, you know, you could consider it a tangential story, but it's very much germane. It leads to the ousting of Mike Pesca at Slate um, because he quoted the um, Donald McNeil story in a Slack chat. Again, none of this is happening at the actual publication. It's happening behind the scenes. And I think that this is leading to a larger a realignment in the world of journalism. There is so many things that are fraught in our culture, but in the world of journalism, there is a real battle line being drawn between writers who believe that our, that our duty is to describe the world as it is, and people and writers who believe it should be uniquely engaged in the world as it should be. That's right. I mean, this is, I remember when I was on the ground in Portland and got a lot of pushback. It's like you have to be an advocate for the, um, you know, for the the protesters. And I'm like, no, I don't. What I have to do is report what I'm seeing from all sides. That's actually journalism. It is looking at what is going on. Okay. Sorry. Sarah's raising her hand. Yes, Sarah? I was going to wait until you were done. I didn't want to interrupt you. I just was flagging that I that I wanted to say, as I pointed out before, like whenever you say that is journalism, it sort of rings an alarm bell for me because the truth is, is that journalism is what we make of it. And, and it is, it is what the culture decides is, is really not our decision. We have to understand we are in changing times. And every time we say, this is what this is, 
So you're, but, but and it's what it has been. This is not an, there's not an eternal truth about journalism. Journalism may be changing. We are in a moment where advocacy and an old school liberal way of doing business are at are at odds with each other. And there is a battle over who reigns supreme. Sorry to be so militaristic, but no, sorry. You know, and, and so, you know, we, you and I and the fifth column and Megan Daum and Jesse and Katie and Barry and all our buds, we stand in a camp that, that stands for kind of old school liberal values of interrogation and, and curiosity and deep investigation. And we may very well be a dying breed. We don't know yet. Okay, so I think you are correct. When I say that is journalism, it is, I guess, what journalism in our estimation should be. And it's sort of like, it's a republic if you can keep it, right? It's journalism is journalism if you can keep it. And the thing is that, God, I could almost, again, I could almost get emotional about this. It's like, it's so starkly obvious to the people that you mentioned here, the fifth column guys who were here two days ago. We were talking about this very, because this letter that we're talking about that was written, this manifesto against the times was written on Wednesday. And I was here with Michael and Matt. And it's just so shocking to us that you can get a hundred people to sign this. We're girl, girl. Hold on. No, I know. I know. I know. I know what you're going to say. Hold on. Hold on a sec. Hold your but voice. But it was 200. Out. I think it was 200 when it. Oh, 200. Okay. That they are. Okay. If you are a writer and a journalist, and I know, as you pointed out to me this morning, a lot of these people are not journalists. They're media people. They're, they're novelists. Novelists and novelists. memoirists right, right. and bloggers and, you know, and, and opinion It used to be the case, and it's still the case when you, you know, work for a place with credibility. I actually just had to spike a story today that I was writing for reason because I did all my legwork. I did my interviews. I talked to these and that people. And then I found out that none of the facts that they were telling me were true or a lot of them weren't. It's fine. It's fine. I, but I, I caught it very quickly. It, it, it got done. You have to check. If someone says to you, what, what is the old, the old line? It says, if, if, if he tells you he loves his mother, his mother loves him, go check, right? So they write this letter that is absolutely untrue. They are framing it th- that saying that the New York Times is basically actively anti-trans in their coverage. It is being fueled or funded or informed by far-right groups. And that this is presenting, again, what did you say? It's putting people in danger. Okay. The articles they cite as so incredibly harmful have been so full of compassion and deeply researched, including one, I mean, it's about six or eight months ago by Emily Bazelon. But it was, it presented a larger story than what these these letter writers believe, which is there is one truth. And the truth is you must believe and protect trans people and never, ever question that there could possibly be some questions about medicalizing transition for young people. I think this is a legitimate question. We are doing to young people, teenagers, we are doing things to their bodies that have never been done uh, in, you know, in good faith in the history of man. Well, because the technology didn't exist. Right. Well, we we know that people can savage people and, and cut them up, which you would someone would say to me, well, that's not what they're doing. They're just doing a double mastectomy on a 16 year old. And that, you know, we know how to do mastectomies. We've we've done them. You know, we do these for, for people. It's like, OK, we know that. 
is this what we is this the best way to be helping people that feel that they're trapped in the wrong body or they they want their identity you know confirmed i had a very interesting conversation i'm not gonna let, let you talk because i know you're looking up nice factoid stuff i have um one biological child but actually three children people that call me mom and one is a girl who I is call you mom well I, everybody calls me nancy Mommelman because you know yeah. i feed you when you come here um she was she she was over yesterday. I love this woman so much, and she is very very uh, smart. She's a citizen of the world. She's a lesbian. She's just just this, she she understands the world in ways that I do not, and I really respect her. And we started talking about some of the trans issues, and it's like absolutely one hundred percent. You need to support people, and you need to confirm with people. But we both agreed, and I was kind of shocked about this. Like maybe. People that are still in transition and they're so young and doing things, maybe they should wait till they're 21. This is my opinion. She agreed with it because brains are changing. And, you know, you maybe don't really know what you want. You thought you knew at 14, but maybe you didn't. Okay, I know I'm going to get a lot of pushback on that. That's fine. But what she said that so impressed me, she's like, Nancy, in order to support people and confirm their identity, it's about respecting them and is what is inside their head and their soul, not what's on their chest or between their legs. That is not that is not who you are. Yes, I right. understand that, you know, your breasts, they don't feel right. You don't like it. You wish they weren't there. But they are not who you are. Who you are is your brain and your soul. And those are the things we should be protecting and supporting and to immediately put the focus on we got to medicalize we got to re we got to redo and physically do these people that strikes me as just rushing to a place that is not getting it's also the wrong place it's the wrong place in some ways to support people so um i i, I like that perspective a lot i i want to slow down a little bit. And I want to lay the groundwork for our readers that might not be as familiar with what we're talking about. Um, as you've said, there was a open letter sent to the New York Times on Wednesday. And I'd like to read a little bit of it. it this was, um, this was an, a campaign that was organized by a non-binary critic and poet named Joe Livingstone. I don't know this person, but... Um, but obviously they they are connected. And it was addressed to Philip Corbett, the associate managing editor for standards. Now, why they went that low, you might as well email it to an intern. I don't they why didn't why isn't it the head right. of standards? Right. I don't I I don't know these things. Um but you know, I want to read a little bit from he, from this, if that's okay. Yep. So this is early. It says the newspaper's editorial guidelines demand that reporters, quote, preserve a professional detachment free of any whiff of bias, end quote, when cultivating their sources, remaining, quote, sensitive that personal relationships with news sources can erode into favoritism in fact or appearance, end quote. Yet the Times has in recent years treated gender diversity with an eerily familiar mix of pseudoscience and euphemistic charged language while publishing reporting on trans children that omits relevant information about its sources. Okay. The stories that are specifically noted in here is the piece that you've already mentioned by Emily Bazelon. Emily Bazelon is a really well-respected journalist. Um, she used to be at Slate for a long time. Then she went to New York Times Magazine. Um, I, I was impressed at how she wrote about 
the Brock Turner case, um, which is, you know, one of my hobby horses, because I think the press got it so wrong. Um, she wrote something that, that, you know, pointed out like, wow, this is actually like a legal battle to have gotten a conviction in this case because blackout stories never get convictions. And everybody was just like, boo, move on. It was not, it wasn't harsh enough. You know, they, they didn't want to listen to it. It was, it was not a moment for reason. I, I find her to be an incredibly reasonable journalist. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't know Emily Bazelon. I would like to meet her. I don't read her a lot because she is so reasonable that she runs the risk of being a little boring. Mm. She's also one of the famous four Bazelon sisters. Yes. She's Laura Bazelon's sister. It's like this brilliant family. And, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, it's and, like a, they're like the March sisters of, yeah. of yeah. progressive um, 21st century. Like her, her sister, Laura Bazelon, uh, is a lawyer and has had some firecracker appearances on the fifth column where she spars with Michael Moynihan. And it's just fantastic. I love, that, she doesn't agree with them at all. And she goes on there because she's such a badass. Yeah, she's great. I like, she's a friend. Laura's a friend. Um, go, um, the other story that's mentioned um, is by the writer Katie Baker, who used to be at BuzzFeed and I think is now a freelancer, but she might be on the, she might be a staffer for the Times. Very talented. Um, I got to know Katie, who is, by the way, responsible for, I think this is public record, getting the Chanel Miller victim statement in BuzzFeed, which went then went super viral and got 16 million and w- remind page us what, views. What the Chanel Miller is, that's the... Um, Sorry, that's Chanel the, Miller is the, the now we know that yeah. the once anonymous victim in the Stanford sexual assault case involving Brock Turner. Right. Yeah, it's totally public because Katie's byline is on that story. She does a little, a little intro at the beginning. Um, I met with her over that case. She wrote very interesting pieces about it as she she got to know the case a little bit better. Um, she's she's really she's great. She's a good person. I was not familiar with the story that they were mentioning because honestly, this is not my lane, and I um, I have so many other things to follow. But she wrote a story in January of 2023 when students change gender identity and parents don't know. And that's a very, I mean, I, you know, I, I know Katie and I know that she's very responsible. And I know that that is an issue that is super important, fraught and important because it's happening to friends of mine that have kids and they have really strong opinions about that. So this is what the letter says about that story. The recent, her recent feature misframed the battle over children's rights to safely transition. The piece fails to make clear that court cases brought by parents who want schools to out their trans children are part of a legal strategy pursued by anti-trans hate groups. These groups have identified trans people as, quote, an existential threat to society, end quote and seek to replace the American public education system with Christian homeschooling. Key context, Baker did not provide to Times readers. Now, like I said, I have not read this story, but I did listen to the Fifth Column's discussion of this, which I, I would suggest anybody interested yeah. in this topic also yeah. listen to. They were fantastic. Um, but but Moynihan is saying she did say that. Yep. She did say that. This is what I what I started out saying. If you are writing this letter, even if you're not, you know, a journalist who has to fact check, you know, your mother says she loves you, check it. You should 
actually not try to like slice and dice and hash and everything just to make your point when it's actually not true. And if you think that this is actually strengthening your argument, it's actually showing you that you don't have faith in your argument. Because if you did have faith in your argument, number one, you wouldn't have to slice and dice that way. And number two, this letter would not exist because you would trust that listeners and readers could listen to a broad array of things and come to their own conclusions because everybody had interesting things to say. But they don't. They don't want other any other opinions than theirs to get ink in the New York Times. Am I mischaracterizing? Not that? at all. Not at all. One of the one of the the writers that has been, you know, has sort of placed herself in the cultural crosshairs on this issue is Lisa Selen Davis. Uh, I became friends with her through the little group, uh, little text thread group that we have with a bunch of women that were in the unspeakeasy retreat that Megan Daum. Um, put together at Joshua Tree. I think I've spoken about that before. Lisa and I knew each other at, at Salon when I published a great piece that she wrote about like a couple that lived in a mall. I mean, this was the kind of writer she was. She was, you know, doing this really, she, it was a great piece. These, this, I don't remember. It, they think, lived in the mall, like slept yeah, in the Yeah, they lived in the mall for like two years. It's such, it was, a, it, was it, it went wow, super viral too. because it was. Cool. I'll have to link it because I want to yeah, read yeah, it yeah, again. Yeah. She's such a cool, she's a cool writer. She's a cool person. She lives in Brooklyn. Um, she was just on a, on a, a show talking about this story and somebody in the comments called her that Portlandia lady because she looks so she oh. looked like a Portlandia library librarian she got you know, a bird she's got on this, her hat yeah. oh she's so yeah I think she's so cool but anyway she wrote a story there was a response to this and she had a line that I want to I want to quote and she says science at any rate is rarely settled and if it is it can withstand scrutiny if it can't, it gets updated. Only when it cannot survive under scrutiny do activist organizations demand that we all look away. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We, we, and, and now what they're saying is not only are they going to demand you look away, they are going to say the paper of record, not even ever, ever print anything but that what they feel is the approved party line on how trans children or children that believe they are trans should be uh, treated. This is incredible. So on the day that this dropped, there was another letter, and it was from GLAAD, uh, the activist group GLAAD. And I, this must – obviously, this was some coordinated sure, situation. Sure. Um, and GLAAD was a sort of sister letter, but this one had – demands. So the open letter to the New York Times from the writers and journalists just sort of was like, hey, you know, this is a problem and we want you to address it. But the GLAAD letter specifically made demands. What is GLAAD an acronym for? Gay, lesbian, and A. Gay, lesbian, Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> you dead were going It stands for, God, we don't even know. I'll look that up while I'm reading from this. Okay. Yep. So one of the demands 
is that the New York Times hire at least two trans people on the opinion side and at least two trans people on the news side within three months. And I was like, I read this and I was like, or else what? You know what? I wrote them a letter saying I demand that they provide me with vanilla ice cream every (laughs) Tuesday night at seven. Yeah. Okay. So it's the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. That's glad. Okay. Okay. Um, So... Like, I'm so confused. What, what's going to happen? And, you know, I read this. Uh, I was telling this to my friend, my, you know, one of my best friends is a, a fucking badass lawyer that's always been sort of, you know, involved in, in progressive causes. I mean, I, everyone in my life mostly um, has been that way. And, and she was like, that is the worst DEI box checking, dehumanizing stuff. You know, like, like to say that, that it's just all we care about is trans. And it's like, you, you're the whole point of these advocacy organizations was to see people not for the box they check. And, and the, the, I, I understand this is like a colorblind theory that is now going the way of the dodo bird. At least that seems to be the feeling, but you know, I just, I, it, I agree with her. Like I, I don't, I'm not comfortable saying, you know, what I want from your paper is to hire two people of this persuasion. You know, the same way I didn't love when Joe Biden was like. Uh, that's right. I, it will be a woman of color. It will be a woman of so, color. Now, I happen to think the woman he chose was great. And, and you know, I, I like Katanji Brown Jackson. Isn't that her name? Yeah. Oh, the, the, the Supreme Court justice? Yeah. yeah. I thought you meant Kamala Harris. I was like, really? <laughs> yeah. A little, a, little, well, a little off the mark there. Uh, just a, a little aside. So I guess it was when um, Biden was pledging to get a woman over something. The fifth column guys got a letter one time and it said that he ran some sort of like I- employment agency. And uh, they got a letter from someone saying we need we it was like a, for an engineering job. But the only thing that was important, the main thing that they needed from the applicants that would be sent was it was a woman of color. Like it said nothing else, not like qualifications, like anything else. That was their only, uh, the only things they had to fill. And, 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 and the letter writer was asking the fifth guys, like, what should I do here? Like, what do I do? And Camille's like, why don't you just like find someone that works at, I don't know, like Baskin Robbins, just a, you know, a a Hispanic girl or a black girl or whatever, and just send them. That's what you wanted. Absolutely. That's what you said. You didn't say anything else. So that glad is now saying, it doesn't matter what these qualifications of these people are. That's all you need to do that. And also, excuse me, why in the world would the New York Times or anybody take orders from anybody? I okay, don't know. I'm with Glad you're going to do what I say. This is, I mean, this is Glad or whatever, or it just doesn't matter. It happens to be Glad today, like trying to step on the throat of the New York Times and the New York Times is just going to say, oh, yes, we're so sorry. We're not worthy. May I read um, the response that the Times? Oh, wait, before we do that, can yep. I just, I, I, I don't want to get to the response yet because I want to okay. lay out some of the stuff on this okay. Glad letter before we okay. get to the response. So some of the the high profile signees on the glad letter include Margaret Cho and Judd Apatow who I just think there's like a whole other episode to be done on what has happened here. 
Um, is he trying to get in somebody's good graces? Is he trying? Didn't he have some problems? He's trying to wake, work his way back. I mean, what's I think happening that, here? I think that his brain must have exploded when <laughs> Catherine Heigl accused him of sexism over Knocked Up, and I just don't think he's ever recovered from that. Okay. He and Seth Rogen are just both on this crusade to kind of prove their wokeism, and I think Judd Apatow is, you know, one of the good things you could say about him is that he really loves women. Um, and and I think that's reflected in his work and the female characters. And I think the idea it's it's got to be triggering something about his mom and his it, it, something's happening there. Anyway, Margaret Cho, not surprising at all. Um, but then there's a lot of like randos, like feminist bird club, and something called peppermint. I mean, it, if you scroll <laughs> through, no, 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 wait, feminist bird club and peppermint. Yeah, yeah, they got some heavy hitters. Sarah. I know, I know, I know. And that's why I had, I had, to, expl- I had to include this because it, <laughs> it is genuinely so random. And there's, you know, there's some, I think the other big name there would be Joey Soloway, who was yeah, used to yeah, be known yeah. as Jill Soloway, who yeah. is the writer and creator of Transparent, who then transitioned uh, himself and is now Joey Soloway. Um, you know, Glad also has put out a protest video uh, that featured the truck they have placed outside the New York Times headquarters in the heart of, you know, it's like 40 sec. Like I can't, I've been to the New York Times building. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's right there in the, the heart of um, like the theater district or, or Midtown. And it's very busy intersection. And the truck says, dear New York Times, it, this is with like LED lights. Stop questioning trans people's right to exist and access to medical care. Well, can I just politely point out that it's not what's happening? No, not only is that not what's happening, but the little video that I don't, I don't, you sent me or I sent you, it's exactly mimicking the way the New York Times does their little videos, which I do not think is an accident. Oh, that's we'll, funny. We'll, oh, that's we'll, funny. That's actually kind of yeah, clever, yeah, though. Exactly. It is. I'm going to put a link. We'll put a link yeah. in, in so the show So one notes. more thing before we leave this letter. Um, there's another part that I think is so important, and this is what's fueling this. And 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 I want to, one of the reasons I am, I am gutted by a lot of this is that I feel deep, divided loyalties. Um, and, and I want to talk a little bit about just the emotional, at least my emotional reaction to all of this, where I feel like my industry is splitting apart, where I feel like people that I love and families are being split apart. Um, you know, I have a friend that I spoke to this week who is a dear friend and his family is dear to me and his daughter who I once know, know knew as his son is dear to me and they are moving from Texas they're moving from Texas because the laws of Texas have become really quite terrible. Um, so this is the part that I think is so germane. I think it's what's driving a lot of this. This comes from the glad letter. Think your stories are innocently, quote, just asking questions, end quote. The state of Texas quoted Emily Bazelon's June 2022 report in the New York Times Magazine to further target families of trans youth in court documents over their private evidence-based health care decisions. So the suggestion here is don't give them, don't give Greg Abbott and Donald Trump or the far right or Ron DeSantos any red meat, which means you can't say anything. And this is what I faced with blackout. You know, when I was talking about 
blackouts and heavy drinking and sexual assault. Do not bring this up, Sarah, because you're giving the other side collateral to silence us. But if you don't bring it up, you're, first of all, you're lying. You're not giving people important information to make decisions about their own lives. And you also cede the argument to people that are not good actors, good faith actors. You know, I mean, especially particularly on this trans issue, who did the most high profile story about trans issues of the past year? It's Matt Walsh. Walsh. Yeah. Yeah. What is a woman? Is that what what is called? a woman? And it, it went super viral because people are so hungry for somebody to to explore the complications of this issue that is happening in our lives, in our backyards, in to our, our children, homes, to, our, to children our children and our friends' children. And here's the thing. Like if this argument was about like a Coke or Pepsi, like who really gives a crap, right? This is not about this. This is about children. And it might not be my child, but it is your friend's child. And I have friends as well whose children have already been medically transitioned, including surgically. Um, And, you know, some parents are supporting this and others are terrified. It is a question. It is an issue we should be talking about. And then I watched What is a Woman because I was like, okay, what is that about? And of course, of course he went too far, right? But even when you have moderate and considered voices like an Emily Bazelon, like a Katie Herzog, like a Jesse Single, I have to tell you, we've said this before on the show, Katie Herzog, when she wrote an article about the detransitioners, children that had decided or young people that had decided they wanted to transition and then did not, it was truly one of the tenderest and most difficult pieces, I am sure, to report. It is so tough. You're talking to young people who have made decisions and now are like, I don't want this. And they have to go through it and they have to go through it. Now they're going to get hate and physical pain. And what is society going to do to them? And she approached it so beautifully. And all she got was hate in when she still lived in Seattle. And they were like, you know, Katie Herzog is a turf. They took all of the stranger boxes, the, the, the paper that she used to write for, and they, they knocked them over and they, like, it's like, you're not allowed. Yes, we can understand that a Matt Walsh goes too far. But even when you do it with utmost nuance and tenderness, you are called uh, a villain. And that is not okay. It is not okay to say we are not allowed. We as Americans, as humans, as parents, as children, as whatever, are not allowed to talk about this issue except in one way. That is totalitarianism. That is what it is, right? Yes, Yes. I had a really interesting experience this past week that I shared with you because it really blew my mind and I want to be a little bit vague on the on the details of it but basically um, an editor of a magazine that I write for had a meeting with someone that was sort of like specializing in DEI coverage um, and that person told my editor, I think there are trans writers that are not contributing to your magazine because Sarah Heppelow writes for it. And this was shared with me by an editor at that magazine who, you know, obviously, like, I don't want to go into the specifics, but like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. This, this magazine loves me and, they, and it's okay. But I think it's really important to point out, I have never written about trans issues. 
No, never and, once. And we've been and at- and and honestly, I and the, and this is going to be a little bit like all my best friends are black, but like this this particular issue really pisses me off because when I was the personal essays editor at Salon, I ran so many trans stories <laughs> that my editor in chief told me I couldn't run any more trans. Cool stories. it, Sarah. She he told me to cool it on the. He's a gay man, and he was like ixnay with the trans stories. It's too much. But they got tons of traffic. They were fascinating. It was an exploding issue that I'd never seen before. Several of the signees, Jennifer Finney Boyle, Thomas Page McBee, uh, yeah, Thomas Page McBee, and, um, and Parker Malloy, all of whom were Our published trams. by me in the New York Times. Uh, I'm, <laughs> what, Sarah, where do you work? <laughs> Salon in the personal essays section. Parker Malloy is someone who then you know, is a, is a very well-known uh, trans activist and trans woman on Twitter turned around and attacked me over the Atlantic piece, which was really stunning to me because the Atlantic piece does not talk about trans issues. What it does is use a phrase, biological differences, that was deemed to be a dog whistle. As my my dear trans friend said, you used a dog whistle you didn't know you were using. Like, like I was talking about men and women, but just the very fact of talking about two camps, men and women, is anathema. And I was dragged over that. And there was a lot of stuff that I deserved. You know, you want to take, you want to stand toe to toe with me on the, on the Stanford sexual assault case in Brock Turner? I get it. I understand. I sympathize. Let's talk. But you drag me over trans issues and I'm confused. And when the the yeah, when a writer who I gave their first major byline to turns around and interviews me for her newsletter and doesn't mention that I that I published her and proceeds to characterize my defense of saying, you know, I have a lot of trans friends as, well, Heppel mentioned she, quote, has trans friends, like it's some sort of human shield I was trying to hide behind. You know, this, this is, this really gets under my skin. And I don't, I fucking don't have an opinion on the trans issue. I have an opinion on the people that I love. And I love them. If you think you know what's going on in this world, fucking press the pause button because we are in an experiment, the American experiment, the human experiment. We don't know where this is going. We don't know what the right side of history is because history hasn't happened yet. And all this just jumping onto the, you know, the crusade to be on the right side of history. Hello, Smoke and Got Em listeners. If you are hearing this, that means you have just listened to the free portion of our, oh, I don't know, biweekly episodes with Sarah Heppler. Sarah Heppler, who's just so busy right now, she could not record this little uh 
interim moment for you. Um, we're happy to have you here as a free subscriber. If you'd like the entire episodes, please go over to smokeempodcast.substack.com and sign up and subscribe. Then you will get the full episodes every week, plus some special things we drop for you on the weekends and our monthly, our first Sunday Zooms. Again, to get the full fig, that is smokeempodcast.substack.com. Thanks.